Hello everyone, this is Project Taro Collective. In this episode of Makeshift Tales, we continue our exploration of design practices that go beyond economic, legal, technological, material and formal boundaries by looking at Cuban inventiveness and how an economic and political context can shape the relation that people have with each other and the material world. For this episode, we are joined by Cesar Bourque-Marie and Joe Purvis. Yeah, you can just tell that it's something they've done their whole life and that for them is a completely normal thing. Cesar is a UX designer and researcher based in Paris. He lived in Havana, Cuba from 2006 to 2012 and owes much of his interest for design to those years. Still now finding a strong interest in the less formalized aspects of design, notably objects and spaces that derive from intuition and immediate need. The thought of like trying to do that in another context, like in the West, you know, that would just never, never happen, right? People would be outraged at the government going that far. Joy is a researcher investigating online arms. He lived in Havana from 2000 to 2012. He completed a BA in history with a focus on the politicization of race in post-revolutionary Cuba and also an MA in conflict resolutions in divided societies with a focus on the study of social movements. His interest is in the relationship between power structures and the lived experiences of individuals. Through an informal discussion with our guests, we try to collectively reflect on this context and tell some of its stories, its legacy, its crystallizing moment in the 1990s and its origin. This kind of inventiveness, this approach to sort of makeshift creation is is rooted much further back than the 90s. It, it sort of starts in, in 59 with the Cuban revolution and Fidel Castro and his revolutionaries succeeding in taking control of the country or liberating the country from a corrupt government and US American influences. That's really when the hardship began, the economic hardship and scarcity um, I would really flag that Cuban ingenuity and inventiveness is, is born out of economic hardship, scarcity, and kind of broader, I guess, broader geopolitics. But, you know, essentially in response to Cuba becoming the first communist country in the Western Hemisphere, then President Dwight Eisenhower um, implemented trade embargoes, known colloquially in Cuba as El Bloqueo, um, and they kind of severed diplomatic ties with the country as well. Those embargoes were like further expanded upon by President Kennedy after the failed uh, Bay of Pigs invasion. But I would say that it was already at that stage that the, the development of that inventive kind of approach was, was born and was kind of actively being kind of fermented by the government. There was the renationalization of education and possibly, I think what a lot of people argue is the largest ever literacy campaign. Um, in the aftermath of the revolution, the I think the literacy rate pre-revolution was something like 30, 35%. And then immediately afterwards, they kind of mobilized. There was like a huge mobilization of people and they brought that figure up to something like 90% really, really quickly. And then in tandem, university becomes free and you know, a huge number of people like enroll in, in tertiary education. And they become like engineers, doctors, and every everything else. And I would say that immediately then is when it kind of it kind of begins. Cuba pre-US departure was really like uh, was Miami pretty much on an island. So there was really a feeling of abundance, and Cuba was really a playground for Americans and just rich, rich people from around the area. It's just somewhere where you had everything you could ever ask for and from one day to the next you just cut the yeah imagine a factory that has a, a supply chain and you just cut it and break all ties and you just leave that situation there to develop itself and so things living in that ecosystem need to find a way of surviving and need to way a way of using what's there and using it however they can to to make it work if you think about it like the US leaves, they, they drop everything, it all gets kind of renationalized by the government. And then, you know, after a period of time, the Soviet Union sort of begins to, to help. And you'd have this like really interesting situations where you'd, you know, you'd have a factory that 
you know, produces sugar that was reliant on kind of US made parts and, <laughs> and processes. And then suddenly it swapping, you know, to a kind of a Soviet uh, model. And I can only imagine what the process of kind of marrying the two together was at the time. Mm. I can imagine, yeah. But while makeshift practices were already widely spread and promoted in the decades following the revolution in Cuba, the 1990s imposed a new context and a new necessities for these activities. A period strongly associated with economic crisis and struggle, but also with the shaping of contemporary Cuban culture. It's officially referred to as El Periodo Especial en Tiempo de Paz, which is the special period in the time of peace which sounds really harmonious and nice, but it's obviously not. It was a, a period of extreme kind of economic uh, and, and social hardship that is, I think it plays a really powerful and, and sort of interesting kind of role in like collective memory in Cuba. It's such a sort of period of like cultural significance that still people kind of refer to all the time, whether they lived it or not. It's, you know, they've, they've kind of inherited that from, from people around them. But it, it basically began in 91 with the fall of the Soviet Union, which was kind of Cuba's kind of main ally at the time. I think Cuba lost like nine tenths of its oil imports, which the Soviet Union used to provide to Cuba at like a subsidized price. And then also the Soviet Union being Cuba's kind of main trading partner, and those, those two things kind of resulted in like a drop in the GDP of like 30, 40%. The kind of loss of, of oil resulted in the near ceasing of anything to do with like agriculture, transport and manufacturing. I mean, coincidentally, the, the, well, not coincidentally, but as a result of this, the drop in agricultural production is what prompted this kind of fascinating implementation of urban farming practices in the country where you have like, I think you've got like now they have one of the highest um, rates of urban farming in, in Havana. I think one of the highest in the world. So the oil crisis and the loss of the Soviet Union um, as a trading partner also sort of prompted these like huge uh, food shortages. And I'm sure Caesar like me, you will, have, you will have heard all of these kind of urban myths that people tell um, about what people were eating at the time. Mm. There's like a lot more believable things like picadillo de soya, which is like soy mincemeat. And then very extreme stories like people melting bits of plastic and condoms to make like fake cheese so that they could sell, you know, fake, fake cheese. But I mean, I would, I, you know, my, my sort of take on it is that it was this kind of, I guess, crystallizing moment for the makeshift approach because you had uh, suddenly a, a very well-educated kind of general population. You had economic hardship, but then also this like communist kind of state building project. So the US were like ever present as this ideological foe and then also a kind of like a galvanizer for the, for the general population. You know, people are kind of unified in their um, in their fight against uh, American imperialism and neo-colonialism. And also, I think the lack of a relations or the lack of a relationship between the two at the time meant that America and its like consumeristic tendencies were not that present in the country, which I think, you know, has also has a uh, or had a huge bearing. The period lasted for for officially lasted for sort of 10 years, kind of ending in the year 2000. A few, and I think it ended officially a few months after I arrived, after we moved there. Um, and it was kind of brought about by Hugo Chavez ascending to, to power in Venezuela and filling that kind of void that the Soviet Union had, had left in terms of trading, but crucially subsidized oil. While makeshift practices can be observed in almost all contexts and at varying scales, they are often restricted to defined groups, or even individuals. Cuba provides a rare example of what it means to have the people of an entire country working towards common solutions, inventing collectively to constitute a resilient and independent society. Evidence of this collective and widely spread approach to makeshifting is not only present in the material and social culture of Cuba today, but was also documented in publications and books, two of which, published in the early 90s, 
aimed to consolidate and share the practical knowledge Cuban had of life in a moment of shared struggle. Even though they weren't widely distributed at the time, these two books are an invaluable retrospective of that moment. Here's another member of Project Auto Collective, describing in more details the story behind these books. In 1991, Verde Olivo, a Cuban military publishing house, released El Libro de la Familia, The Book of the Family. This book, developed and distributed in collaboration with the Cuban Armed Forces and the Federation of Cuban Women, represents the awareness the government had of a very severe economic crisis and an attempt to utilize knowledge to reshape consumption and production patterns within the island. The book itself is a comprehensive manual collecting the knowledge already present within the Cuban army or taken from other popular publications, and it is addressed to the general population, providing solutions to the common problems that that moment was imposing on the people. The book spans from information on soil composition to acupressure to appliance repair. Less than two years later, a new book was published extending the scope and reach of the first one, titled Con Nuestros Propios Esfuertos, With Our Own Efforts. The radical change that this book presents is one of format, content and intent. While the previous book conformed to a more institutional style of manual, with contents mostly attributed to authoritative sources and then provided to the population, here the people became the main source of information and knowledge, the knowledge of the people for the people of Cuba. The book is a collection of experiences recorded throughout the island, stories of improvisation and solutions. In different municipalities, people could hand in a record of their experiences in an attempt to make knowledge available to all and help each other in a dissemination project that supported the atmosphere of social solidarity present in the island at the time. What is featured in this book maintains the instructional and utilitarian language of a manual, but represents a much broader shared dialogue. From the use of Soviet componentry to create new production machinery, to food recipes, from energy consumption to children's toys, the book is truly vast in its scope and themes. Today, both books remain as a significant source of information on the makeshift practices of the special period. And even to those who weren't there during that time, still provide a form of representation of a mentality of which legacy can still be observed today. I hadn't come across either book in the past, like I hadn't read either of the books in the past, but I'd heard of Con Nuestros Propios Esfuerzos because for a while I was at the University of Nottingham in their archives reviewing all of the magazines and newspapers that were published in Cuba from like 58 to 63 or something like that. In, in a lot of the magazines, they had this weekly feature, which was like a hero of the revolution. Sometimes it was, you know, somebody who had been involved as a, as a soldier in the revolution or, you know, had played a, you know, kind of strategic role during it. But a lot of the stuff was about people after the revolution. I remember one, you know, one of the examples was this, this guy who was being touted as the hero of the revolution for, you know, coming up with a way of replacing a small part of, you know, of a, of a conveyor belt style piece of machinery. And this is like a national, you know, a national newspaper kind of lauding him for this. And I think it like, it speaks to the, the way that they were kind of embracing and, and cultivating that inventive approach. I first heard about the books after having left. But what made it so interesting to me and the reason why I shared it with people who I thought might find it interesting so quickly is because it really, yeah, it really reflected the reality of living there. This idea of ad hocism, this kind of makeshift, uh, makeshift made up inventions that are no longer made up inventions because they're used by a, a group of people. The fact that Cuba was uh, kind of sponsored, if you can say it that way, by the Soviet Union, and before that had all of the remnants uh, that the US had brought in, I think that also made it, yeah, it meant that in Cuba, you had a catalog of things that was either from the US, so uh, whether it's a 57 Chevy Bel Air, okay, that's a very popular car back then. 
that there's plenty of, and that's one item that's there. Not a lot of cars have come in since. And so that's the reference that we have and we know how to fix this and we know what to do with this. And probably we have uncles that have dealt with this. We have family members all over a neighbor that has one. And I think the same thing happens with all of the Soviet utensil tools, uh, whatever kind of blenders, everything you think of, fans. Um, I think it's these references that people have were all the same. There's a common, there's, an ob there's a lot of objects that all of Cuban people know. The, they didn't all have the same life, but they all had these things that you just you just live with in your whole in your whole childhood in your whole adult life yeah so i think these these references they all had were all the same and so the solutions to all their problems were common i have one example that i really liked somebody has like written in and spoken about their bus in cienfuegos struggling with weight distribution in the bus um and somebody's you know filled out the form and said we had a problem with weight distribution. This was resolved by replacing the springs with springs from a train. And it just, I was just like, oh my God, like what's the, what's the, what's the parallel in this day and age? And the only thing that I could think of was forums and like subreddits dedicated to, to a very niche subject where people discuss how to fix or repair something or, but, I've never seen anything that's this kind of all-encompassing before. And it is just, yeah, a truly phenomenal book. The role that the special period had on informing the material culture in Cuba is undeniable. Anything from healthcare to food preparation to recreational activities was in some way shaped by the economic and political context of that decade. The extended practice of repair, reuse and invention says a lot about the capabilities of people to see past the formal boundaries of products, to develop a new vision and idea of human relationship with space, material and technology. The conception of objects and activities changes, and even though the period officially concludes in the year 2000, the behaviours and approaches they formed extend well past that moment and start to respond to different problems, with a large number of clear examples still defining the following decades as permanent pieces of heritage ingrained in local culture. Transport is a really good example. One of, to me, like the, like the mental image that sort of summarizes it is those stretch larder taxis, where basically like either the, you know, the back end or the front end of a car is, has been deemed like, okay, yeah, this, we can't salvage this. Um, and then they, they like cut it in half and stick it onto another car. And so you'd have these like, yeah, stretch limo kind of taxis. And transport wise, I was thinking about this the other day and I don't know why they didn't use them for their original purpose, but all those fishermen on Malecon sit in the middle of a pumped up truck tires. And so they just have their bottle and their fishing line and they sit in the middle. And that's literally the, that's the standard there. Like all of the fishermen you'll see fishing because they can go way out all of them will be using that. And I don't know if that's from somebody fucking up and ordering way too many, uh, way too many tires. Inner, and, inner and, tubes. <laughs> yeah, inner tubes and not having enough trucks to fill them in with or if it's from somebody getting a good deal somewhere at some point. But what I really liked as well is the way in which more so than with objects even, there's behaviors that are passed on and I guess that's everywhere but here it's also behavior from necessity I think it's it's an interesting example because it's, it's definitely about well it's possibly about like you know surplus material but then it's also to do with restrictions imposed on people by the government because having access to a boat is like just not a thing there the only boats are like military or tourist vessels or like very very few kind of everyday people are allowed boats because of the, the you know the concern that they'll they'll flee to, to to Miami I don't know what product it was I don't know if it was a fridge or if it was it was some kind of electronic appliance might have been like a washing machine or something like that and I remember it arriving because every time something new comes you would not want the person who's installing it to take pieces away because for them like a washing machine for example has probably 
half the screws that could leave yeah. and it would function perfectly fine. Yeah. And so for them, that's just, okay, this is unnecessary. I can take it, I'll make good use of it. But if you leave it on here, it's literally going to waste. And so their way of using those resources that they accumulate over time, because it's not like you have a shop where you can buy a box of something. It's like uh, everybody has an, accumulate, an accumulation of things that you, that you get over time. Um, but so just this idea of cutting things to the bare minimum is not from an ideological point of view, but really from necessity. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways of recycling paper was to recycle it into toilet paper. And I remember, yeah, for like a lot of my childhood, going to the bathroom and grabbing the, the roll of toilet paper and trying to read different bits of words and sentences on, on my toilet paper, um, much to my, yeah, my parents' horror. But yeah, I, I, I have very strong sort of memories of that, um, especially in the, early, in the early years that I was there. But I think that's still very much a practice that is to this day kind of... Um, implemented there even beyond the idea that it's uh it's out of necessity it does leave a mark on you in terms of what you consider to be yeah it, it just reshapes the way in which you understand objects and in the way in which you understand waste as well a lot of the reaction that cubans have as soon as they leave the country is just decadence because they've been so deprived of it and they're just it's something they've never seen so it's just the buying the, the biggest things, the brightest things. And it's, yeah, I think definitely a reaction to what they've been imposed on their whole life. But it, I think there's a part of it that's still, this is like a very quick reaction. But then in time, I think this mentality of what is waste and what isn't would be pretty different to people that have lived in Europe all their life, for example. I would like to think that they've developed a kind of endemic vision of the material world yeah where they where they can understand how something can be useful in more than the way in which it was intended to be in the era of digitalization and globalized communication cuban resourcefulness starts to play a more and more active role in the digital and virtual spaces the severely limited opportunities to access international dialogue and ultimately the general lack of internet as a means of communication and content sharing present new challenges and opportunities for collective problem-solving. From the establishment of locally-based alternatives to the internet, to new ways of sharing. The average Cuban did not have internet at all. The last time I went back to Cuba was in 2013. It didn't exist back then yet, but, but yeah, there is, there is now Wi-Fi in some Cuban parks, for example. And so you have a whole family around a smartphone uh, FaceTiming the yeah the members of their family that are in Miami, and just it's a uh, yeah it's it's remained in some ways a very communal. I mean it's it partially it's partially why when I went to London I didn't have a phone for the longest time, and it's because I hated this idea of just everybody has a phone, everybody's on that thing all day, and you just uh, you're just sucked by it. And over there it wasn't the reality at all because it's just there wasn't that distraction. It didn't exist in that way uh, and now it's starting to happen a bit but it's uh yeah i think they still see the internet in a different way and i think we as foreigners also see all of this inventiveness and all of this resourcefulness as like super interesting and uh, kind of fascinating obviously they did it because they didn't really have a choice but they also didn't know they probably didn't realize that what they were doing was not a standard anywhere in the world. They didn't have a lot of access to the info as to like, what does a car, what does a normal car look like in the US in the eighties? I don't think they would, I don't see where they would find that information apart from having family that comes back and telling them or showing them pictures or getting hold of a random magazine that somebody brought back in or something like that. But yeah, so I think they are starting to have a, a relationship to the internet that is slightly closer to what you can find everywhere else. But there was a time where, and I remember this, <laughs> this is like, a, yeah, anybody that lived in Cuba at that time would know this, but you would have these guys in different neighborhoods. And this can be a random guy. This can also be like a guy 
who makes it his job. El paquete. Way, el paquete. <laughs> el paquete, which means the, the bundle, the... Yeah, packet. The yeah. Packet. Um, and this is just a person that has a hard drive or several hard drives on which they would have all of the series, all of the new movies, all of the like really fucking badly recorded movies at the cinema that you see, uh, all the cams, all the uh, everything. And you would go, or you would go to his house, or he would go around and just uh, like, he's at your friend's house, so you'll tell him, oh yeah, I come to my house later, oh, I'll stay there so I can go and I'll get some stuff. And he'll just sell you files and you just plug in his hard drive into your computer and pass you the files. And that's all over the country as well. That wasn't only in Havana. You would have a, a friend that has watched a movie and you realize that at some point there was like a, a bug or the screen, the screen was kind of fucked up. And you would end up realizing that, that everybody in Cuba had that same file because they knew that at that moment the screen fucks up or you missed the scene or whatever. And so like that was literally that one file traveling all over the place and going from computer to computer. Instead of things traveling through cables they were traveling through physical storing spaces that were moving around the country el paquete was yeah was very like very useful to us a show could come out like on the friday night and by sunday monday morning somebody would have it on a usb in cuba it is crazy it's this kind of informal network that's in some ways it's it's kind of community driven as well because you could go to the guy's house and say, I want this, I want that. And he might not have it, but he'll know somebody in, you know, the, in the next neighborhood who has a much bigger hard drive and has X, Y, and Z. It's really cool. It's really amazing in a way because it's this kind of sharing of, of information in all its forms. I guess in Cuba, it's not, scared, you know, it's not illegal because they don't have these kind of copyright laws in place. And it's not, you know, it's not insanely expensive either. The majority of people would be able to have that experience. Whereas I think today, as of, you know, 2022, they now have 3G on the island, but it's something that is only really accessible in terms of like everyday use to this kind of like emerging middle class that exists there now. Everyday people, they might have 3G, but it's something that they would use like really, really sparingly, like, five minutes on a day or five minutes on a week so they can reach yeah their grandma in miami or something yeah the, the generations today i think to do with the fact that they with the internet know how things are outside to do with the fact that they most likely will know somebody that lives outside that element of comparison to their reality i think makes it very difficult to stand by and accept the situation that they're in I'm not saying that when they were fixing their problems or fi fixing objects, fixing, uh, making makeshift, uh, makeshift op objects to, to solve their everyday problems. I'm not saying that that was uh, accepting their situation, but I think that now they realize that it, the, they're being put in a situation that is not normal. Whereas before they were just coping altogether because these are hard times, except these are not hard times. This is just something that's been going on and that's going to keep being like this for the foreseeable future if nothing changes. The complexity of the Cuban experience over the last 60 years can be interpreted and discussed through countless different lenses, narratives, analytical processes and comparisons. And even though retrospectively and comparatively, many of the makeshift practices we have discussed carry a strong political and social message, it is unclear how much they were considered as such by those experiencing them. To some inhibitory, to others emancipatory in nature, to some fascinating and innovative, to others normality. It is easy to find in this example large space for still relevant discussion and thought. Is there a formal liberation that comes from the ability to interact at this level with the material environment? Is challenging the limits of formal, technological, economic and legal boundaries innovation, disobedience or both? But besides the different perspectives and interpretations of this context, Cuba provides important insights in systems in which the individualistic tendencies of wealthier economies haven't been as impactful, and leaves space to imagine what can be achieved when collective action and solidarity are fundamental elements of reality. I feel like a lot of, of these practices in, 
in Cuba are possibly born out of aside you know aside from this kind of overarching sort of political context I think how to put it I guess at like a, a a broader level it's a society that values the collective as highly as it values the individual in a lot of other contexts where like in the west where you know the the individual is and, and the individual's rights are kind of held above anything else by a lot of people something like this can be perceived as as a radical act but it's not such a radical act right at least in my opinion it's you know it's kind of uh, valuing sort of your role as an individual within the collective and appreciating that you know you have to give and take um Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the Cuban government and communism in general would pride itself into thinking that Cubans are the way they are because that's what they've been told is uh, is what they should do and that the people uh, should be together and all this. But I do think the reality is that the people are together against the reason why they're in that shit situation to start with. You do, you do have struggles, for example, to find eggs or milk or the most basic of things. And you do start to have networks of people that call each other to say, oh, I went to this supermarket and they have, they have toilet paper. Or, uh, oh, yeah, there's wheat in, uh, in this side of Havana. Okay, you can go, but I'll buy some more for you because uh, it's probably going to be gone by the time you get there. So I think it does, the context does push you to think more than about yourself because there's this notion that you see the value that other people can have for you as well given that you cannot be everywhere at once in the same way that you might know you might have a cousin somewhere that has a tool that you don't have that you might need someday and then you have something that he might need someday or you know how to do something that somebody else doesn't know how to do and so there's this real idea of sharing what we have and making it a common pot of what we can all benefit from as opposed to every individual group having their own having everything they need to live independently i'm not saying that i subscribe to this but there's the argument that um because the us had the policy like if you're cuban and you arrive on american soil you automatically get citizenship because it was like you know much more straightforward than it is for people from from a lot of other countries to get the citizenship the majority of people that had a big problem with the status quo left and then that leaves you know the the the, the people who are like willing to take higher risk out of frustration at the status quo their outlet is to leave as opposed to engaging in like political dissent and everything else if those people, if, if it had been made more complicated for them to, uh, to arrive in the US, would things have been the same? It's un, un, unsure. Um, I know the US government has now canceled the policy, so I'm assuming they think that's what's gonna prompt change. But just to play devil's advocate, is this approach to, or has this approach of kind of makeshift creating and, and, and inventiveness, has that also played a role in maintaining that status quo as well? Or is it more just a kind of a natural, you know, like is it, is it less about maintaining the status quo and more about people just kind of surviving? Makeshift activity in a collective design sense in response to commonly experienced problems and limitations is something that still remains as an experienceable practice today. In its varied forms and scales, parallels and similarities can be found in many past and present contexts. Some are driven by solidarity, some by dissent, some by survival, and others by scarcity. During this COVID period, there was a moment in France where you would have on the news tutorials on how to make face masks when there was a shortage of the, the official ones. And I think that that's a very nice reminder of how far we think we've come and how basic these type of uh, solutions that 
anybody can get a grasp of are. You put everybody in a situation where the solution isn't to go and spend money and get the thing that you need from a store. In a situation where they have to think of how to fix this, how, okay, the constraint, the brief is cover your nose and mouth to go do your shopping and do it however you want. And I just like this, uh, this kind of design challenge that that situation imposed on everybody and the way in which the government also in the same way that it was done with those books in Cuba. Um, yeah, I just like the way in which a basic everyday problem got big enough that it got some attention from a government level. When discussing makeshift practices, and more specifically design practices, they aren't universally recognized as such. Collective experiences of limitations and necessities can often provide insights into alternative approaches to design activity. Cuba remains an important example of this phenomena and represents an extensive source of knowledge on alternative ways of participating in the shaping of everyday practices. Following are selected parts of an informal conversation that four members of Proyectado Collective had after first listening to this episode their impressions, reflections, and perspectives. We hope that by opening our discussion to all, we can more effectively represent our interest in continuing to explore these topics and our willingness to do so collaboratively and in an accessible way. One of the more interesting things during the discussion was uh, when we were going through the books and uh, some of the componentry that was used within the examples that people had sent in and that the military had published. It highlighted an interesting point about standardization generally within the realm of design and industrial design. And there is discussion in the world of design that kind of negatively positions standardizing um, and standardization of certain components and products as a result of globalization. And this is often positioned to be a negative thing because it tends to squash local manufacture and kind of grassroots and local cultural production of things and basically gives like large companies a lot of power over the way that certain objects are. But in this case, uh, in the specific case of Cuba and the fact that they were using, everyone had a lot of the same products because of this special relationship with the Soviet Union. And also I think there was a bit of um, the U.S., some US componentry, such as certain cars that were really common there, they were able to use these um, components as the standard toolbox of their own. Hmm. They were so ubiquitous in their daily life, these objects and these components, that then everyone was able to use the same thing. They understood all of the references and it was a positive kind of useful Hmm. thing in that specific case. It actually helped them and made it easier for for people to be able to share how-tos. For example, these books that we have used as references and they came out wouldn't have been possible without this idea of standardization. Mm -hmm. So it's a very unique context for that reason because in a situation in which even the most technical of solutions have to be kind of makeshifted, Um, even like machinery and production equipment and all of this type of stuff has to be put together by putting together other parts of other things. The fact that, like Jackson was saying, the fact that everyone had the same points of reference was very helpful because you could fully, like it happened in the books, write a guide and be like, you can just grab this piece of this specific model and you can put it into this other specific model. And everyone understood, ah, yeah, I understand this. Like this is, a, you know, I have this or my cousin has this or something like this, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and if there was instead smaller, less standardized production, it would have been a lot harder to, mm-hmm. to present this solution in the same way. Yeah. Imagine that if they weren't making references to specific products, which were known to everybody, they would have to say, go find this size of spring with these kind of uh, specific qualities. So it works there. But they would just say, grab the spring from that product, put it there. So everybody would understand. 
it's very funny because many things that uh, the, the guys were telling during the interview resonates a lot in, in Brazil or in Argentina. We don't live under the same, the same restrictions in, in terms of politics, but we have a lot of constraints as well in terms of money and, uh, and access. So many things like the, the movie trading, uh, mm-hmm. all of the, I mean, recreate, repurposing things at, at home, not only because there is like an embargo, but also because we don't have the money or we don't have access to that. Our cinemas are, or are expensive or we cannot go. So all of these allowed piracy or allowed systems or tradings that are operating, it's very much similar. And it's a... Uh, it's interesting. It, it was something that we questioned also. Is this the, the is the Cuban inventiveness a Cuban thing, or is it actually just what happens when you just are struggling economically, and it can happen anywhere? I think one thing that makes it, uh, I think, a little bit more significant for Cuba was the the fact that Cuba is an island, so it is kind of uh, a little bit more isolated compared to other places, it's a little bit of a uh, world of its own that uh, uh, I'm assuming, uh, like uh, Argentina has a huge land uh, border with uh, other countries so that it, it, I, I don't think you can manage it to stop people from crossing things over. But with an island, it becomes more uh, bolden that you see that you're kind of standing alone. When you read the introduction, to some of these books, especially the second one, like the the whole kind of narrative of, you know, the kind of uh, communist project, the fact that, uh, you know, even the, the title of the book, which is like with our own efforts, like there is this uh, kind of general idea of like, we're doing this together. We're gonna go through this as, you know, the people are gonna get together and do it, you know? Mm. And, and so there is this narrative that is very uh, kind of collective, in, in thinking about action and how to do certain things. But then like a lot of people in there didn't actually necessarily after decades of struggle, didn't necessarily still associate with, uh, with that particular political ideal. And so I think that this parallel that uh, you drew with, uh, with your personal experience, that's pretty interesting. I made an example during this call, for example, it, I mean, for a long period of time, like the south of Italy and the north of Italy were considered quite different and they still are pretty different. Uh, namely, like the north being the most, the more industrialized um, area and like wealthier area of the country and the south being more like the poorer part of the country in terms of like GDP, if we want to talk about it that way, you know? And there is this that independently from kind of political views, you still see that like in places where there's a little bit more economic hardship, people tend to stick more together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Firstly, like there's no, there's no possibility of like uh, families to split up very easily early on. So like even in everyday life, like families stick together. You don't have like children moving into their own flat by themselves. And um, so there is this, even at the smaller familiar level, there's this concept of a collective and like a group that you always have to kind of imagine yourself within a context that involves other people. And rarely you can abstract yourself and imagine yourself in a context where you are actually completely isolated and completely independent from everyone else. Um, While in the North, this started to be very different. Um, And you will start to see like a lot of, for example, Northern Europe uh, right now, you start to see like a lot, a lot of people living by themselves or living like in very small, um, very small groups, you know, like couples or individual people in the individual flats. And generally the dynamics that are created socially tend to move more towards individualistic kind of patterns in wealthier uh, economies. And so like this kind of general narrative of doing things together and doing things collectively that was used in these books uh, 
more than political seem to to resonate a lot with what has been said also with the other examples that you made this is very much about wealth and kind of economic condition you know the overall economic status of that kind of area compared to another area does affect the way that people interact with each other and kind of think about the collective space and think about you know how to work together and how to depend on each other because you kind of in it together there's this kind of general sense of solidarity that is a little bit more developed i feel yeah yeah i feel this is very much aligned to to a, a theory of the pan-africanist thought that talks about the, the how the 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 cultures of let's say what would be the south and the north were antagonic uh, antagonically um developed that one on the what is today what we understand as a, as a north or what is the europe and asia uh there was like because of the of the climatic conditions on these areas you had like the necessity of populations being constantly um, moving from one place to another, competing against each other. And um, it was a much more individualistic way of, uh, of operating and for forming the culture of these, uh, these spaces, whilst where, where you had like uh, the meridional zone, where, where you have like most of Africa, for instance, where you, you have like these communities that were created based on the first community that created agriculture with a very strong relation with the land with a very very strong sense of community because it was like everything should have been done together i feel like this somehow has um, a very strong connection to what we can see in cuba i think that together with what she was saying about being a, an island there is a, like a, a big community of, I mean, not in all, all Latin America as well, but like Cuba is a, a strong Black community as well. It's one of the biggest Black diasporas in, in, in the Americas. So maybe we can also add this uh, cultural, societal component to this idea of, uh, of creating things together and then a, a general understanding of this, um, this attempt of Yes, we are, and pride of, yes, we are doing this together. We are building things together. So we, we have to document it in a way. I don't know. I wonder if this is some, um, there is a connection on that. Another thing that I found really interesting during the conversation is that, yeah, there is this, this sense of pride on creating and recreating ways of doing things. There is this, this, this narrative that is really it's really nice to to listen to it's something that also resonates culturally with what I, I grew up with on assuming the makeshift as part of of your everyday life or part of uh how you present yourself to the community or to the to the society you know and then how this this is a somehow representative of like a natural intelligence of a population this is something that i feel there is a lot to un untangle on this, on this, and then the fact that these books were not so well spread around the country, or people don't really know that. I mean, I don't feel it's uh, it's necessarily a bad thing. Maybe for someone that is from from Cuba, reading the reading those those books are like. Yeah, you're not saying anything new, you know, like you're not bringing, you're not reinventing the, the wheel. So it's just like, uh, yeah, this is part of who you, we are. We are. We are really proud of it. If you're writing a book, yeah, that's just one more thing that is being done on that, you know. Yeah. But, but it's, it's really interesting that uh, for whoever is not inside, having access to that, it's something, it sounds as something novel um about this kind of intelligence that you were talking about and this is also like really like if it seemed really powerful to me when i started to understand the base level of knowledge that the average 
Cuban seem to have about all of these things, it's like incredible, like compared to the knowledge that we have in other contexts today. Like even the examples that we heard in the thing, like the fact that the person that comes there and installs your appliance, you know, knows that if you remove certain screws, they will still work fine. It just in their mind is, is like something that is not, it's not necessary and just like superfluous. But this knowledge of knowing what's superfluous and what is not and what can be used and what is not really indicates like a high level of education that comes from both the practice of doing this, of course, but also I think that what um, I think Joe brings out in the conversation, this, this idea that it was the perfect moment also because they did the like very large campaigns of like making again like schooling public and like uh, a lot of educational projects, a lot of literacy projects, and this I think is something that is very important to to remember that there is a, a level of knowledge and education in this context, and to be able to pull out something like this in a collective sense, that is like very impressive. You know, now we see a lot of these things as like novel and kind of clever and all right, whatever. But this like comes from a knowledge that is much deeper, much more deep than that. The ability of like opening up an object, picking some parts and putting it into another one is something that we are completely disconnected from in some of the, you know, for example, in a lot of the context in kind of Europe today, a lot of people will not be able to to pick up an object and do that a lot of people would not even be able to replace a cable in a very simple appliance you know and it feels like i don't know it's it's something that's important to remark because sometimes i think it slips away in the conversation mm -hmm. that this is like a very impressive level of knowledge that is collected in these books and has been experienced throughout the island in that period yeah. of time but I also think that in as well as an impressive level of intelligence um, and to add to that experience, there is also the willingness to take risk, which I think is something that when you have not enough knowledge about the, the way things work around you, you assume sort of the worst or tend to create a kind of fear bubble around them and the worry that you're going to break something or do something wrong or it's going to hurt you but the the idea that as you start and you build confidence and then you keep going and then it, it kind of accumulates this um, confidence in your ability to actually just do something for yourself there's more and more walls going up in front of us between the the casings of the objects that we use now and our actual understanding of and ability to interact with them for, for Cubans at that time, due to necessity, they had to break this wall down. And then just, there was just a kind of cumulative process of just, I, now I can do anything and I will. And it just sort of exploded there. Mm. I think a lot of people around us now, you know, yeah, changing a, pl a plug, doing really basic things with, to me, I don't know, it's like electrical items. A lot of people are, have, like, are scared of it <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's about knowledge and just, just understanding what, what will hurt you and what won't hurt you and that it's okay. I think that uh, these things that you both just said, it's a really important topic to open a discussion on how, in general, it's, uh, there, is a, a, there is a tendency to look at uh, makeshift as only an outcome of scarcity and inventiveness on a very constrained um, environment and, and then it, it's very easy to to bring it only to the economical aspect of that, of of how this is being developed as a cultural aspect whenever you bring to all of these other educational self-esteem I mean you have to you know like uh, there are like other there's like they are like important elements of uh of how to look at that and then we, we should actually pay attention to that and then not let ourselves to fall into the in the trap of analyzing it only 
on the lenses of poverty or mm. or isolation yeah. yeah i see now that the, the the element of knowledge is could be even much more significant than the other elements what you guys were mentioning i think i was thinking that this is perfectly symbolized in that uh, a sticker that they put on uh, electrical products like on the back of your laptop there's a sticker on the screw that if you rip this sticker off and open your laptop then there's no guarantee you're, you you've ruined it you picked in where you weren't supposed to pick and this is i think a sort of competence that we lost over time uh, the ability to have an intimate knowledge of the workings and the repair of the objects that we use on an everyday basis they became more and more technical but we were sort of left behind we weren't uh, this kind of knowledge were knowledge was um, restricted to the experts and uh, we became sort of alien to the objects that we used it it also like opens um another i mean it's i think that's a, an overarching discussion on that is that uh, where we live now and then how we operate towards consumption it's just like this this idea that we we've been alienated of uh, of the process of making or understanding what what which are the techni technicalities of an object so we cannot intervene on that and then even like regulations on you you lose your guarantee if you open it so this is a lot to do also with the way that we are only treated as we are clients and consumers and then the objects if you don't know how to use it it's easier that to just throw them away and then buy a new one not only because we have access to that but also because it's necessary for the wheel to keep to keep running i don't know in the case of cuba in the, the early 90s obviously there was a slightly more analog there were more analog products compared to the amount of digital technologies there are now that uh, accelerated and changed quite quickly, but they there were it was a bit slower to take on, um, and there was also a chance that they that it would be much harder to hack these objects. But there is the example that there were pockets of people creating their own internet by having sort of LAN wire networks, and this I think again references back this amount of confidence and kind of willingness to actually try to do this because this is pretty spectacular <laughs> to actually be able to do. I think that like uh, Cuba seemed to have remained as advanced in their ability to continue to do these practices as the objects they were able to put their hands on, you know? Because as Jackson said, it could have easily just remained that there was a moment in time where everyone became aware of that moment's technology. And then going forward, there, there, was, a, there was a chance there that they were not going to like pick up on like the future technologies eventually coming in. But it really seems like basically anything that made its way to Cuba, they fully got a very complete grasp on it enough to not only modify it and use it, but also like reappropriate it, redesign it, redo it. With this idea, for example, the internet, how do you play online games between hundreds of different people in Cuba and like creating the infrastructure to do that uh, in a completely independent way. It's a very impressive thing. And I think that going back to this idea of, of knowledge and education, like as far as I have read, the moment that they get out of this special period, which was as was mentioned in the in the conversation when they got like this new deal for oil with uh, Venezuela, part of the deal on the side of Cuba was to give educated doctors, engineers and stuff like this to Venezuela. So there is this idea that even compared to a lot of other countries that potentially more access to the outside world than Cuba itself. Cuba was still producing knowledge of a very high level, enough to be desirable by other countries, even at the time that they were like under very strong restrictions and limitations. So this, I think, is a yeah, very important thing to notice. And 
it really makes you understand also, again, with the consumption patterns that was, I think Nayar was mentioning before, and how we deal with problems in other contexts, there is this very different shift or dynamic that you go from, like if, if we consider this uh, something about control or power of one thing over the other, I would say that you can really see in a lot of contexts today that the power dynamic is different, is definitely of the object having control over the user. While in this context, you can see that the opposite, the opposite is happening. And this is very, it makes you also reread this practice even more as a practice of liberation from constraints and how you perceive to be a part of the material world and like what's your place in it. And so I think that, yeah, they really define a different philosophy of work in a sense when it comes to how you approach these type of objects and these type of practices. I think that that also leads to interesting questions and possibilities for the future of the types of industrialized design or just design that emerges out of Cuba and the approach that the designers who are there could have, which I mean, this very much trying to constrain your users doesn't seem, you know, instinctively to be the approach that a Cuban mm. Cubans would have on their people <laughs> and then and on the users. Yeah, I think when you're when you're designing for an audience that has been used to this kind of practical approach and this sort of reappropriation of the objects, you can't really assume that much for them to accept a one-way relationship with the product. You have to assume yeah. that they have agency and they're going to take control. So you're going to be, um, I don't know, more mindful of uh, what you assume about your users. Definitely. Even just in relation to manuals, like it might even be considered condescending to, to offer too much information on how something's used because potentially there's already, you know, you just you just assume that people will work it out, understand or do something different and it'll be fine. Yeah, as opposed to like going in over explanation. It's also interesting to think about this in Cuba because in a context where everyone was more used in other contexts to like make do with their stuff and understand the products around them, it even seems almost more beneficial for designers to focus more on components rather than on products. Mm. the design of a specific component may, may have a stronger impact in that context than the, than the design of a new light. Like instead of designing a new light, designing a new type of maybe light bulb attachment could be something that in a context where people understand how these things are put together and they understand how they work might be something that actually is more meaningful and has more importance. So it's interesting to consider who is the designer in this scenario where obviously the kind of authority of the design of everyday objects is more spread between the population because clearly people are designing for themselves. So it's interesting to see like, how do you insert uh, someone that is like uh, from an educational perspective being educated as a designer and how does that person produce something that is meaningful for a population of kind of designers that people they're already designing and they're already making yeah what you said about uh, like educated designers having to face the situation of designing for people who are if not educated in practice designers themselves connects with the approach of the second book i think that the people who were putting down pieces of knowledge about um, let's say agriculture they didn't have academic credentials to be talking about different levels of i don't know minerals in the in the soil or um, they weren't talking about it in in accordance with the scientific method but the language that they were using and um, the the way that they were conveying this kind of knowledge was appropriate for the audience of whom they were a part of so they were creating knowledge for themselves. And I don't think that it would have worked as well if a person who was a, like an academic researcher in agriculture was putting down pieces of knowledge with an academic language and trying to conform it to methodology. So maybe that's something for design as well. 
This was episode two of Makeshift Tales, a podcast series curated by Project Auto Collective. We would like to thank our guests for their time and valuable insights on the topic of Cuban inventiveness. And we hope that this episode will help inform more conversations on the relation design has with different social, cultural, political, economic, and intellectual contexts. If you want to learn more about us, see our work, or get involved, please visit our website, projectado.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episodes of Makeshift Tales.